Matthew 5, verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. All right, y'all can be seated. We're doing a summer series through the Beatitudes. This will take us all the way to probably the beginning of school, whatever the beginning of school looks like in the fall. But we will be in the Beatitudes until the first couple weeks of August. The Beatitudes, they are a lot like the Ten Commandments. And I don't mean theologically. They're a lot like the Ten Commandments because you probably were first exposed to them in Sunday school. So we get exposed to the Beatitudes, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, the, the fruit of the Spirit, and, and the armor of God. And, you know, we, we get exposed to all of those in Sunday school, mostly because they're, they're really fun, you know, to, to put on the wall. Like, you know, they do like the, the really corny artwork, you know, and they put it on the wall and, you know, they have it all listed out. And they're also really easy to remember because they're lists. And the Beatitudes are also a lot like the Ten Commandments or the Lord's Prayer because, you know, we, we typically memorize it and we're really familiar with it. But the problem with our familiarity is not only do we sometimes miss the meaning of the Beatitudes or the Ten Commandments, oftentimes we just think we're familiar with them. So, for example, if someone just walked up to you on the street and they said, hey, do you know the Ten Commandments? Every single one of you would say yes, that you know the Ten Commandments. And then if they asked you, well, what are the Ten Commandments? Can you, I, I don't know what they are. Could you tell me what they are? You guys would have heart attacks, you know, because you'd be like, oh, let's see. Um, you know, except, except Aaron. I think Aaron would probably do it really well because, you know, she's just that classic Southern Baptist, just, just faithful Sunday school. She knows them. They were ingrained. But, but you know, the Beatitudes are like that. Do you, do you know the Beatitudes? Well, yeah, I know the Beatitudes. They're, you know, starts the Sermon on the Mount for Jesus. And, well, what are the Beatitudes? Well, let's read them all together. Let's, let's look at it. Matthew 5, starting in verse 3. We're going to take it all the way to verse 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Beatitudes. Now, depending on how you count them, there are either eight or nine Beatitudes. We're at minimum going to preach eight sermons. So we're, you know, even if we say there are nine Beatitudes, we're preaching the last two together because you see how, how similar they are, verses 10 and 11. So these Beatitudes are blessings from Jesus. And I don't know if there is another word in the Christian vocabulary that is hijacked by Southern culture more than the word blessing, right? Like, Everything is a blessing. We hear that word 
all the time. Bless his heart. I'm so blessed. You know, what a blessing you are to me. And we say it, in, you know, with sincerity, and sometimes we say it with sarcasm, right? Oh, man, he is such a blessing, you know? We, we use this word all the time. But do we really know what it means? Do you know what it means to actually be blessed? We're going to look at a few, few different things. So let's, I want to start with what the world typically thinks, what religion says, and then what Jesus says. So first, the world. What, is, what does the world say about what it means to be blessed? Now, when modern people typically think of blessedness, most of the time they think of happiness. That's, that's the category that they're thinking of. And even though happiness and blessedness, blessing, they're not the same thing, they're, they're actually very similar. So happiness, as defined by modern standards, it's really like a game of hide-and-seek. A philosopher from years ago said, the concept of happiness is such an indeterminate one that even though everyone wishes to attain happiness, he can never say definitively and consistently what it is that he really wants. The secular concept of happiness is the end of the pursuit of what you want most. So that's, that's what happiness is. If you want to be happy, you, you pursue something. And once you finally reach what you want, then you can be happy. So, for example, if you want success more than anything else, you'll be happy when you receive a promotion. If you want romantic love more than anything else in the world, you'll finally be happy when you're married. If you want popularity, you'll be happy when you have a lot of friends. And if you want control, if you want control more than anything else, you'll finally be happy when everything in your life goes according to plan. The problem is this happiness ethic that that prevails in our day requires self-sufficiency. It requires self-sufficiency. You have to be enough. Happiness, they say, is possible either for those who are good enough to acquire it or for those who finally accept the self-defined standard of their true self. So our American version of happiness requires us to be autonomous, and it is entirely subjective. Happiness can be reached by you or by me based on our own definitions and standards. And, And happiness, even from a secular worldview, happiness is what we all want most. The blessed life is what we all want most. Philosophers throughout the ages have always called it the good life. The good life. And we're all in pursuit of it. Uh, Speaking of modern day people, especially Americans, this, this historian said, we can be happy. We will be happy. We should be happy. We have a right to happiness. This is our modern creed. I mean, the pursuit of happiness is written in the Constitution of the United States as an unalienable right that is granted to us by God himself. But, but the question we have to ask, especially of this worldly secular view, is, is happiness, well-being, and blessedness something that can be pursued? Is it something that can be achieved or, or purchased or won? If happiness is nothing more than a subjective feeling that comes after we have worked and longed for what we actually want, if its driving ethic is self-sufficiency and self-autonomy, then yeah, happiness can be caught, but it can only be caught for a moment. It actually can't be kept. But to be truly happy, to be truly satisfied, to be truly content and fully alive, 
as God always intended for humanity, that requires something more than a realized temporary feeling. And that's why blessed is a better word for what the world really wants. I mean, you've noticed this, right? That we're never quite happy when we're happy. Even when we finally get what we want, it just, mm, hmm, didn't feel like I thought it would. That's because we desire something that's like happiness, but it goes deeper. We're after a happiness that lasts, that sticks around. We're after a happiness that exists as a state of being, no matter what the world throws at us. But this isn't something we can catch, no matter how hard we try to chase it down. We cannot produce or acquire or buy what Keller calls the REM sleep of the soul, deep soul rest. We can't find it. We can't achieve it. We can't buy it. But the world says we can. You know who else says that? Religion. Religion says the same thing. They just say it with different language. Religion says that we can find happiness and blessing by following the rules, by, by being very moral people. Even in the church, haven't we heard that contentment and blessing are found by obeying God enough? If we just obey God enough, if we're faithful to him, he will bless us. How many of you have heard that if you remain pure in your relationships leading up to marriage, you will have a happy and healthy marriage? And if you don't, then your marriage is going to be in trouble. When something bad happens to us, what do, we, what do we tend to do? Something that happens outside of us. We tend to look at our past lives and we think, you know, what have we done? What have we done to, to merit such a terrible circumstance? Religious or legalistic people, they say happiness and blessing can be pursued and earned and acquired through hard spiritual work. And then we come to Jesus on this mountain in the Beatitudes. And Jesus says, the one who is truly blessed, the one who has hope for a happiness that transcends the circumstances and even the feelings a person experiences, that is one who possesses the kingdom of heaven as a gift of grace from the king. In other words, blessing is bestowed, not pursued. It's blessing that we all want, not, not just a feeling of happiness. And that can't be chased down. It can't be earned. It can't be bought. Blessing has to be bestowed. It has to be received from someone else. Scott McKnight says that a blessed person is someone who, because of a heart for God, is promised and enjoys God's favor, regardless of that person's status or condition. That's what we're going to be looking at in this series. Now, as we approach the Beatitudes, there are two ways that people typically read them and understand them and interpret them. All right, and the first one is probably the one that you're most familiar with. So a couple ways to read the Beatitudes. First, what people tend to do is they view the Beatitudes as characteristics of kingdom people. Characteristics that we should embody, that we should embrace in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. So we view the Beatitudes as entrance requirements. And if we would be poor in spirit, if we would mourn, if we would be meek, and if we would be merciful, if we would hunger and thirst for righteousness, then we will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then you actually get in real trouble when you get down there and you say, blessed are the persecuted, 
right? And then you're like, well, I don't know about that one. But that's what we do. We, we look at them and we say, these are characteristics to embody so that we can get in the kingdom. And then there's a second way to read them. That the Beatitudes are not entrance requirements, but they are pronouncements of the good news of the kingdom, which has arrived in Jesus. Pronouncements of the good news of the kingdom, which has arrived in Jesus. So I'm going to be safe, and we're going to, we're going to take a both-and approach here, okay? So uh, that's how we're going to be looking at each of the Beatitudes. We are going to first consider them as pronouncements of the gospel, and then second, we're going to consider them as, as characteristics, not, not so that we can enter the kingdom, but characteristics of kingdom people. So just to be clear, before they are characteristics of the good life, The Beatitudes are gospel promises, especially made to those that are typically rejected by the world. The Beatitudes are the good news that the kingdom of God is wide open, that it is for the outcast and the downtrodden, the ignored and the hated, that the kingdom of God is for the forgotten of this world. The Beatitudes are not primarily Attitudes, you've heard that one, right? That the Beatitudes are attitudes you should be, you know? They're not, they're not primarily attitudes or characteristics to pursue, nor are they conditions that inherently merit blessing. But, we're going to take a both-and approach, but when you do pull on these blessings, you pull on these gospel promises, you do find that the character of Christ is attached to them. And it is this character to which the people of God the church at Trace Crossing, that we are being conformed. So the Beatitudes are a picture of the good life, the life that flourishes and thrives. So a couple questions to, to start us here as we, as we start taking them one by one. And these are sobering to me. If these are the people who Jesus says are blessed, if these are the people who are in the kingdom of heaven, What does that mean for me? And then a second question. If this is how kingdom people live, then how should I be living? All right, so we're going to take them one by one. Tonight, we're just going to consider the first of the eight Beatitudes. We're going to look at it in two ways. First, as good news that's proclaimed to the poor in spirit, and then we're going to consider how the good life is characterized by being poor in spirit. All right, so uh, look with me at verse 3. We'll read it again. This first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Before the beatitudes are guidance, they are gospel. And we will miss the beauty of the beatitudes if we just see them as heavenly advice. Jesus is not saying that you need to pursue spiritual poverty so that you can be blessed by God. That, that's not what this beatitude is. That's not what Jesus is doing. And how do, how do I know that? Or how do I at least think that? The context helps. So what we have here is Jesus, we see it in verse one, seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and he taught them. And this begins the Sermon on the Mount. But before Jesus gets to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had... Well, when he was a child, he was threatened, and so his family went into Egypt, and then they come out of Egypt, and then as he grows up, there's this moment where Jesus is baptized, 
And the the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descends upon Jesus and leads him out into the wilderness. Jesus is tempted, and then Jesus comes out of the wilderness. And when he comes out, he starts to preach a message. And if you look at Matthew 4, verse 17, we start to see what what the heart of Jesus' message is. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus has come to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come down to earth. Well, then Jesus calls his disciples to himself to follow him. He preaches the gospel of the kingdom. He begins teaching in synagogues. He heals, Matthew tells us, every disease and every affliction among the people. He liberated those who were oppressed by demons, and he healed those who were suffering from seizures, and he healed the paralytics. What we see Jesus doing here is he's not just proclaiming that the gospel has come. He is showing that the kingdom itself has come down from heaven to earth. Now, the kingdom of heaven is key in understanding the Beatitudes. What is the kingdom of heaven? Is that just the the physical location where God is in, in heaven itself? Jesus says he's brought it down to earth. No, simply the kingdom of heaven is the realm and the rule of God. And maybe, maybe it will help you to think of it more simply. The kingdom of God is like any political administration. So anytime there is a change of power in earthly kingdoms or governments, there are always new values or priorities, expectations, or actions that, that are implemented. And, and we hear about them all the time. This is an election year, so we're going to be hearing the ads that start coming through. The ad cycle is coming, and we're just going to hear about it. You know, how is this administration going to be different than the current one? What, what do they value? What do they want? How are they better? And then we, we evaluate whether they would be better or worse. But each administration is always connected to a specific person, whether it's a politician or whether it's a king. And so the kingdom of God had come to earth for one reason and one reason only, because the king had arrived. The king had come from heaven to earth. And so when Jesus came to earth, he brought this kingdom with him. And this is a kingdom that is experienced now, even though it will be finally fulfilled and consummated when he returns. Jesus, the king of the kingdom that he has brought to earth, sits on this mountain And in a sense, he begins to outline the administration of his kingdom. And he begins that outline by saying, here are the ones who are in the kingdom. Here are the ones that the kingdom is for. That's why we're saying that the Beatitudes are gospel pronouncements before they are guidance to the good life. He is saying that this kingdom that I have brought from heaven to earth is wide open for anyone to enter. Now, how does he... how, how does he proclaim good news to those who are poor in spirit? What, what does that mean? What is Jesus doing here? Well, it, it's really important to understand who the poor in spirit are. The poor in spirit are those who lack spiritual resources. And I really don't want you to complicate it. it when you think of someone who is poor in spirit, first think of someone who is just poor. When you think of someone who is materially or, or economically poor, we know what that means. They, they lack financial resources. Well, this is a person who is poor in spirit. They lack spiritual resources. And Jesus turns to them and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are those who are in great need of provision from the outside because they cannot conjure it up from within. 
They lack the natural spiritual resources to please God, to worship God in spirit and in truth. The poor in spirit are the ones who cannot seem to overcome sin. They keep stumbling over themselves time and time again. Dallas Willard in his book, he says that the poor in spirit, they would be the ones who lack deep Bible knowledge. That the poor in spirit, they would be the ones who not only would they not want to pray in front of a group, but you probably would not want them to pray in front of a group. They are the ones who continue to struggle with sin time and time again. They are weak. They are empty. They have nothing within themselves to please God. Do we consider such a person blessed? When you think of a person who is blessed, does your mind immediately think of someone who is poor and weak and needy and empty. Families who can barely afford to keep the lights on at home, do we consider them blessed by God? No, the needy ones of the world are far more often discarded, and they're rarely ever honored. Even when we say, man, God is just really blessing me right now, we always refer to something of great value that we have either done or that, that, that we have so when we succeed at work, we receive a pay raise. When, when we lead someone to Christ, when we understand a deep biblical truth, when we're able to teach someone or help someone who's weaker than us in the faith, we, we feel like we are blessed. We feel blessed when we are able to contribute, whether that's materially or spiritually. The poor in spirit are not favored in the world and and more often than not the poor in spirit are not favored in the life of the church because they don't contribute they don't contribute they don't seem to have any inerrant value and aren't we prone to value and favor those even in the church who contribute more than those who don't we look to those in the church who have great knowledge those who are wise those who have great abilities and resources and we say blessed are the strong blessed are the wise Blessed are the knowledgeable. Blessed are the rich. Well, how do we think about those who are constantly in need? We don't call them blessed. Well, for instance, what do you typically say to someone who is poor in spirit, who is lowly, who, who you might consider spiritually immature? Well, we tell them to try harder. Study more, think more, pray more. You'll get there. You'll get there, just keep working at it. But here's Jesus. And he says to the one who is poor in spirit, you are already right where you need to be. Precisely because you realize you'll never get there. You'll never be enough. You'll never have enough. And that's enough for Jesus. He can work with that. Aren't you so glad that he can work with that, those who are poor in spirit? He says we can be happy here. We can be content here because it is in our spiritual poverty that we actually have everything. Blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the spiritually poor who are actually rich because they feel and know their need for Jesus more than those who take pride in spiritual riches. They trust and hope only in God because they know that they cannot help themselves. A person who recognizes his spiritual poverty 
is spiritual immaturity, how far they are from God, how far they have to go, and how much they have to grow. That person is nearer to the kingdom of God than the person who believes that they're doing just fine because of how much they know about the Bible, because of how much they pray, because of their theological precision, or because of their good morals. Jesus completely flips the script. He turns the world upside down and he turns typical church cultures upside down. And he says, the very ones that you reject and forget are accepted and favored by God. The kingdom of God is open to the ones the kingdoms of the world shut out. Jesus is sitting on this mountain and he says, my kingdom is for the dejected, the counted out, the lowly, the weak, and the destitute. The kingdom of God is for those who say in their hearts, I am empty before you, Lord. I have nothing, nothing to contribute, nothing to bring. And that's what he's here to say to every single person in this room. If you feel like a spiritual outcast or a weakling or you are just not growing the way that you wish that you were and you feel empty inside, this is good news. You are blessed Jesus says. Now, before anyone here is tempted to take a vow of poverty so that they can make sure they stay blessed by God, or or if you think that spiritual disciplines just should not be for you to pursue so that you can continue to be in need, we really need to consider why the poor in spirit are blessed. Why are they blessed? Well, it's not because they are in a state of spiritual poverty. God doesn't look out on the world and say, who are the ones who are the poorest? Who are the ones who are furthest from me? I'm going to bless them, and I hope they don't grow any from this point on. No, the, the poor in spirit are blessed because they are in need of spiritual resources that they do not have, and they find it all in Jesus. The poor in spirit are guaranteed the kingdom of heaven as their inheritance for one reason only. The one who's bestowing the blessing is sitting right with them. You think about it. If Jesus had not come from heaven to earth to sit with them on this mountain, the poor in spirit would have no hope for blessing or favor or wonderful news from God. They would remain empty. Jesus comes down from heaven to start this kingdom that will be filled with those who have no spiritual bragging rights before God. And and Jesus has opened wide the doors of the kingdom. So if you think there is someone in your life who has no place with God, who is too weak, who is too sinful, who, who, who you would never want to bring, you may even be embarrassed to bring in the doors of a church or bring to a life group, that's who Jesus says are blessed. These are the ones that the kingdom of God has come for. They are close to the kingdom if they recognize how empty they truly are. So there's good news for the poor in spirit. But the poor in spirit also live the good life, okay? So since the poor in spirit are blessed, we can also say that spiritual poverty is not something that we're meant to ever grow out of. Spiritual poverty is actually something that we're supposed to grow into. You see how he flips the script? You would think that if you're spiritually poor, then... You know, you come to Jesus and then you become spiritually rich and you should grow out of that. But Jesus says, no, you need to grow into that. And this means that we will never, ever outgrow our need for Jesus. One way to grow more and more into the kingdom of God that he has called us to 
is to be poor in spirit. So in one sense, the Beatitudes alter the way that we evaluate the spiritual maturity of a Christian. So I want you to think about that for a second. When you think about your own life, maybe you would say you're spiritually mature or you know, maybe, maybe you're not as spiritually mature. If we're evaluating other people, this, this gets right to the heart of our discipleship. Who do you consider to be spiritually mature? Because Jesus' standard for spiritual maturity is different than ours. We typically say that the spiritually mature are the ones who are truly blessed are those who read their Bible every day, are those who pray every day, are those who attend church regularly, those who tithe, those who are generous, those who know a lot about the Bible. Those who teach or preach, I can't tell you how many times, every time I go home and visit family and I see someone and they hear that I'm a preacher, they, oh, the Lord has really blessed you, you know, just because I'm a preacher, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. Those who evangelize, we look to them, that's a spiritually mature person. Those who have really interesting or, or great conversion stories, those who separate themselves from the world have nothing to do with it. Those who succeed in, in their life. Those are the ones we consider to be blessed or spiritually mature. But Scott McKnight says that the Beatitudes of Jesus are nothing short of a revolution of evaluation. Jesus measures true spiritual depth by looking at our inner dispositions before he looks at our outer production. So in Jesus' kingdom, the blessed and spiritually mature are the ones who have a humble disposition toward God and others. They are the lowly, the blessed ones. They are the ones who are desperate for Jesus, the ones who are in deep need, and they know it, and they continue to realize it. And I know that we get this for conversion. We talk about it all the time when we speak of our own conversions, that when we came to faith in Jesus, oh, you should have seen me before. You should have seen me before. And then whenever the Spirit just revealed my sin, I realized how much I needed Jesus. But why isn't that our story for a random Tuesday? You know, that should be our story if we wake up and we have a 30-minute quiet time in the Word and we, we pray three times a day and we share the gospel three separate times that day and we come home and we're just the best spouse, the best parent. And at the end of the day, we should still be able to say, I'm in desperate need for Jesus. I'm in desperate need for Jesus. We're so quick to judge and shame others because we forget that it's the needy ones who are truly blessed. We, we like to feel superior, but spiritual superiority is not a characteristic of the kingdom of heaven. Spiritual poverty is. Those in Jesus' kingdom grow deeper in their need for him. The good life, the life of blessing, the life that thrives is so countercultural. Self-sufficiency is a core American value, not a core kingdom of heaven value. The good life is not the self-sufficient life. The good life is the Jesus-dependent life. And, and the good life is characterized by spiritual poverty because of the king who bestows the blessing. Jesus, who had all spiritual resources, became spiritually poor. And when I think of Jesus, I do not think of spiritual poverty but, but consider Philippians 2 for just a second. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus counted himself more lowly than his rightful status. He humbly served those that were beneath him. And even though Jesus was literally better than everyone, he considered himself the servant of everyone. He assumed spiritual poverty in our place and for us. So it is this goal of self-emptying that we are called to pursue. The way of the kingdom, success in the kingdom, blessing in the kingdom, the good life, it is marked by humble dependence on God and humble service of others. Is this the kind of life that we want to pursue? A life of spiritual poverty? Or are we going to be swayed by the self-sufficient values of the world? Will the Beatitudes, by the end of our series, become our true standard for where blessing and happiness come from? Because if, if we want the promise of eternal blessing and the good life now, there's only one way for that to happen. We've got to be in the kingdom of God. That's it. And the good news is that the king has come and that his kingdom is wide open for every single person that's in your life and for you. And all we do is enter by faith. So are you poor in spirit? Do you know someone who's poor in spirit? If so, know that the kingdom of God belongs to you. Let's encourage our friends, our family members who feel so weak and so poor in spirit that they could never have a place with God, that they are right at heaven's door. And let's encourage them to walk in because the king will embrace them. And, and church, let's continue to grow in our need for Jesus. It's then that we will be truly blessed, that the favor of God will rest on us, and that deep rest and contentment will be lasting possibilities, even when our circumstances and feelings tell us different. Let me, let me pray for us.